are constantly bombarded by a culture of more. More to do, more to acquire, more to strive for, attempt, gather. Every day is a race of just trying to keep up with more. Ask someone about their life and the standard response is busy. In a world that's daily living on the edge and yet still chasing the more, how do we practice or even know God's desire to create space and margin within and around us? God does have more on the horizon. Stop living on the edge. Come and discover His life because His life is the real life, life to the full. pray. I read my Bible. I go to church. I amen the preacher. But when it comes to actually living my life, it's just not that easy. I want to do good. I want to represent. But no matter my intent, I get lost in the confusion. I've ended so many chapters without resolution. But Lord, you remind me that nothing happens without purpose, and I don't have to feel worthless. Rather than life being a series of circumstances, I take a look back. You've given me so many chances. It's a process. No matter how beautiful I am or how incomplete I feel, you, Jesus, is the only thing real. Whatever you yield, it's by you I desire to be filled. So I will study your blueprint and I will let you build. Thank you. I uh, want to welcome all of you here, all of our campuses. Um, what, what a joy. Uh, somebody said it to me this way, better uh, to be seen than viewed. And I agree with that 100%. Uh, 100 <laughs> and if you're like, what do you mean? If you didn't know, uh, I suffered a little heart thing. Um, uh, <laughs> big heart thing about five weeks ago. But that's not the point. The point is, man, I can't tell you how good I feel right now. Um, my, yeah, I just, it's like, um, <laughs> for five weeks, I've eaten clean, um, and that is, I went 52 years without doing that, so that's, that's a big change. Um, I, yeah, I'll talk about that more later. And then, uh, exercise now has become like the, um, the, the way back out, and, and to get a release on my life for all the things I want to go back to and do. I have to prove to them that, um, that my heart can take it. So I have to like, I go to a thing called cardiac rehab and I go three days a week and uh, I have to exercise five and six, but I go three days and they hook me up and I have to exercise in front of them and prove to them my heart is, uh, it, that it can take it basically. That's the best way to say it. Uh, I'm probably the youngest guy in the class by, by a good bit. There's one other guy that is 65 and he said, hey man, you and I are the babies in the class. And I said... I'm the baby, you're the senior, so um, just, just keep us separate from each other. <laughs> so, uh, but I feel so good. Listen, in the midst of the last five weeks, um, I, I, I want to share something with you that's just, it's, it's like a kiss from God. 
it's like in the middle of all the turmoil and all the stuff to have to, to overcome and recover, had this really wonderful thing happen. Um, we have seven grandchildren prior to this event five weeks ago, and in the middle of all this, number eight was born. And I want to show you a quick picture. Uh, this, this is Malachi Daniel. Uh, this is the first leech baby right here. And uh, it, um, he weighed 15 pounds. Just kidding. He did not weigh 15 pounds. If you could sit here and just see people's faces when I say that right there. Yeah, so Holly won't be back for six months anyway. No, uh, he weighed uh, a little better than eight pounds, and uh, he's going to be a, a, a big boy like his dad and like his grandpa. He's got two. I'm not talking about me. Holly's dad is a great big guy. So um, that's Malachi Daniel. Daniel and Holly are doing great. So in the middle of, of everything that was going on, he was born. Yeah. And then, and then Katie uh, has announced number nine is coming this spring. So how about that, man? I got grandkids all around me, and God willing, I'm going to live a long time to see them all grow up and maybe even get married too. So uh, super excited about that, and uh, just, just want to welcome him and, and let you know about it. Go ahead and grab your notes. We'll jump into this. Uh, it's my first weekend back to do all the services, and I, felt, I, I feel so good. I just felt like, hey, I can do it, and... Um, I, yeah, just, just thank you for your prayers and your concern and your care. And just, just uh, I even had somebody, when we were praying, somebody came over and anointed me with oil, right? You guys were all praying, and I, I got a, it was a kamikaze anointing because I wasn't ready for it either. And uh, I'm, I told her I'll take it. So um, here's the deal. We're in the final message on a series called Jonah that we started four weeks ago. I did the first two and can only do a couple of the actual live messages uh, Pastor DJ did last week, and I appreciate him and his, uh, his, his ministry to our church. I'm, I'm going to finish up this weekend in the final message, and it's a little bit different in that uh, Jonah's only four chapters. It's a very small book in an otherwise large book that makes up the Bible. Uh, whenever I read the different books, one of my questions that I ask myself is, why is this in here? I think that each of them has some type of understanding for us. The Bible's not one authored book from the beginning to the end. It's made up of several authors over a 2,500-year time period, but it says the same thing from the beginning to the end, and that message in a concise sentence is simply this. God loves you and is doing everything he can to prove to you that he loves you and is reaching out to you to restore you and to reconcile you to his family, to his grace, to his mercy. And you'll read it through the whole Bible. Jonah is one of the books that talks about God's grace and God's mercy. It begins with a prophet named Jonah, God gives him a word and says, I want you to go to the great city Nineveh at its time. It would have been in the top three largest cities in the world. It took three days to start at uh, the beginning of Nineveh and walk your way all the way through it. 120,000 plus people lived in this city. And for that time, it's a very large metropolis. God sees it's a wicked city. It's, a, it, it, it's not a good city. It's a very pagan city. God tells Jonah, here's the word. Go to them and tell them in 40 days, I'm going to judge this city. Jonah uh, absolutely does not want to go. His reasoning is really, it's strange. We'll talk about it here in just a second. But Jonah does everything he can to be disobedient to God. He jumps on a boat and he goes the opposite direction of where the city of Nineveh is. God has to intervene in that situation to get Jonah's attention. And the story goes that Jonah ends up being thrown overboard of a ship in a storm that will not relent. The Bible says that a big fish swallowed Jonah for three days and three nights. 
he was in the belly of this fish. And I know a lot of people, uh, even some of you that come and hear this message today, may be like, I'm not sure if I believe that, Pastor. Is that story allegory? I mean, where are you at when it comes to whether or not you believe that? I would just say simply this. My point of reference to whether I believe it has to do with what Jesus said about it. Jesus actually referred to the book of Jonah, to the story of Jonah, and this is what he said. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man, speaking of himself, be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth before he's resurrected. So if Jesus referred to it as real, because I'm a follower of Jesus, it helps to settle the issue for me. But let me say this. I realize that not all of you are followers of Jesus. Some of you are here today because you're checking it out. Some of you are here today because your neighbor won't leave you alone. Some of you are here today because you're sincerely seeking. And so I want to say this to you. We welcome you. I'm glad that you're here. And even if we disagree about what we believe, I appreciate the fact that you would be here today, and I want you to do this one thing for me. Would you keep an open heart and an open mind? Would you allow that if there is something here that God would have for you, that you would be open to that right there? And maybe that's the place that I'll begin with this message. When I read this final chapter. When I went to put together the message, it was a little different because I didn't think I would talk all the time about Jonah. What I really read here is that I felt like, gosh, reading the fourth and final chapter, Jonah's response, once he goes to Nineveh, uh, God gets his attention, he repents, God causes the fish to throw him up right outside of Nineveh. I, I, you know, I, I don't know what Jonah would have looked like, but assuming that God didn't stop the gastric process in the fish, this guy probably did not look like he just walked off of Fifth Avenue into this city. I, I mean, his skin literally could have been bleached white from the gastric juices in the fish, seaweed hanging off of him, who knows? But he was probably a sight that would have been like, whoa. And then the guy begins to say, hey, you've got 40 days or else this city's gonna be destroyed by God. Now I would just think this, let me just throw this out to you. One of the reasons I think this book is in there is for people who teach. Because here this guy has the most remarkable thing happen. I've taught in this city for almost 18 years. And I would love for this city on one day to say, man, we heard the message, we received the message, and the whole city comes into revival. Would that not be the most awesome thing that could happen if you're a teacher? I mean, if you're teaching for that, I would celebrate, I would dance. You guys would see your pastor in a new way that you've never seen before. I would be like David and dance down the street in my underwear. I would be an excited person. And I know some of you are like, well, we can need to get him saved just to see that. Okay, I, yeah, it would be a sight. I would be so excited. Jonah has this happen. The entire city repents. And rather than be excited about it, he's mad at God. Here's what he t I knew you would be merciful. I knew you would be kind. I knew that people were going to listen. And he's mad. I would, I, where does a guy get that? I think one of the reasons it's in there, the truth just simply is, even if you teach, you can have the wrong heart when you teach. It's not enough just to tell the truth. You've got to do it with the right heart. And I think there's several messages in here but when I read that final chapter, man, it was so, was such turmoil because I was like, how did he get into this place? And the word in my mind, disqualified, just began to come up. And I looked at Jonah, and I looked at what he did, how he needed mercy, and he couldn't give the same mercy to people. And I thought to myself, there's a message here for the church that I wanted to talk about. So I just wanted to talk about today, what, what disqualifies us? I mean, are there things that disqualify us in front of God? 
What are those things? What does that look like in our life? I think for some of us, man, we judge so quickly that we've got like the big things. If you do these things, you're disqualified. And I just wanted to use this book and this talk and this time just to kind of maybe talk about God's grace and God's mercy. So the first one, uh, I just doubt. I think a lot of times believers in particular think, man, if I struggle with doubt or if I admit that I have doubts or if I, if I even open up to the idea that I'm not sure about everything, that that disqualifies me. So a lot of times we keep all these things bottled up inside of us and we don't know how to answer people who have doubt. We don't know how to interact with people who express those. And what we kind of do is just simply judge them and we kind of put them in a box like, man, you can't express. If you're a believer, you got to believe everything. And I would say to you, man, belief is a process. I don't think you believe everything at one time. I think you can come into belief about Jesus, but then you begin to process and you grow and you become. And I would say, look, where I was at 30 years ago when I became a believer, 32, is way different than where I am at right now. And that's a good thing. Wouldn't you agree? There's a lot of stuff I believed 32 years ago that I just simply I didn't understand yet. I didn't know yet. A lot of things I believe now because I've processed life and walked with God for a long period of time. But a lot of people, man, struggle with doubt, and they tend to think that doubt disqualifies them. And I thought I would just throw some things out to you today to talk about doubt. There's a story in the Bible that has to do with doubt. I think it's in here because God wants us to understand how he feels about doubt. And sometimes what we judge as disqualifying, God sees completely in a different way. This story is from John's Gospel. This is actually about one of the disciples. Now, I think this is interesting because if you're a disciple and you walked with Jesus for three years and saw all the stuff that they saw, like if I could go back one day in history, if there was a time machine, the one thing I would go back is to spend one day with Jesus doing the miracles. I would love to see the dead come to life. I would love to see the lame that never walked walk. I would love to see blind eyes see. I would love to see the deaf hear. I would love to see the demons chased out. I would love to see lives put back in. I would love to see Jesus do what he did so well. And I know those things can happen today. I've even seen some of those things on a limited basis. But with Jesus, it happened all the time every day. And I would just say this. If you're one of the disciples and for three years every day you saw him walk on water, raise the dead. I mean, take, take small amounts of food and create enough for thousands and thousands of people. If you walked with him and saw the miracles every day, wouldn't you think that would leave you without excuse when it comes to belief? And yet there's one disciple, and this, this story takes in place in this context. Jesus has given his life, so he's already been crucified. He's been resurrected, but he hasn't ascended. And in between the resurrection and the ascension, he's here for 40 days. And during those 40 days, he appears to thousands of people. Literally all over the place. He's, he's talking to people and meeting with people. But, but he, he, with his own disciples, so there was 12. Judas betrays him, hangs himself. So now there's 11 of the 11, one had doubts. And I would just say to you, how can a guy that walked with him for three years in a way that you and I never have, have doubts? And so the one disciple that did, his name was Thomas. And what's his nickname? Doubting, Doubting Thomas. I am glad we don't get nicknames for everything that we do in life. <laughs> I would hate to be known as, hey, there's heart attack John. I... <laughs> guy for all of history because he expressed doubt. It's called Doubting Thomas. All right, so this story takes place. Jesus has appeared to um, the other 10, but Thomas hasn't been there. So the disciples are trying to convince Thomas that Jesus is alive, and here's the story. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, so he's one of the ones that walked with Jesus, was not, was not with the other disciples when Jesus showed up. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
But Thomas gives this really faith-filled response. He says to them, unless I see for myself the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. (laughs) A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas is now with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. Hey, just real quick, what do you think Thomas, do you think he's like trying to get to the back of the room, like hide out, like, okay, um, you know. So, so Jesus came, stood in them, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, hey, put your finger right here. Put your hand right here. Do you think Thomas like, you know, I was in a bad place a week ago, Jesus, but I'm, so I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I'm real. Because the Bible doesn't tell us if he did it or not. I just would think the human response. So it's, no, that's all. It's okay. I don't know. So put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side where the spear pierced him. Uh, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, this settles the issue. Uh, my Lord and my God. What he's saying to him is, I believe. <laughs> Done deal. A little further on. In that discourse, Jesus says to him, because you've seen, you believe. But then he uses this powerful word, blessed are those who believe and have never seen. Another way to say that is, look, one form of belief is if I see it, I'll believe it. But the highest level of belief is simply this, God said it, and because he said it, I'll believe it. And when you believe it, you actually can see it. And here's where the Bible sometimes runs into this thing called faith. Because a story like Jonah, a scientific mind goes, I just don't think that could happen. I could agree with that, but it doesn't keep me from believing it because I don't have to see it to believe it. I can see it because I believed it. I believe that God can do anything. I believe that God is powerful enough to create. I believe he's powerful enough to save. I believe that God can stand in between us and what the enemy wants to do. I believe he can put back together what's broken. I can believe all sorts of things about God that come from the simple statement of, first and foremost, I believe, and my belief over the years has caused me to see. Does that make sense? And so some sit here today like, Pastor, it's so difficult for me to believe. Listen, man, I'm not saying believe everything. Here's what I'm saying to you. Believe in Jesus. If you can believe that right there, it's the beginning place of faith that leads to the ability. Faith is found in the belief of God first. Then you can see. If you're a person who says, I will only believe it when I see it, how much are you missing in life? How much are you missing in faith? God, some people think that's just so unfair, and yet there's no way. Here's the deal. We are so finite, and he is infinite, and even if, here's what we think, if God would just show up and say it to me, I'd believe it. How about this? Jesus showed up and said to us, love each other, and we can't even do that. Every time I want God to explain to me how he did what he did, he never feels compulsion to do that. He just says, do you believe? And he leaves it there. And so many people are on so many different journeys in here. And the great news is, doubt is not a disqualifier from being a follower of Jesus. And the proof is, this disciple had doubts. And Jesus did not say to him, you're disqualified, leave the room. Listen, you laugh at that, but you should be really glad about that. Because I bet at some point you've had doubts about something. Especially when God doesn't do what you want him to do, or you go through something you can't explain. It's very easy to doubt. It's very easy to doubt. 
even to doubt his goodness or his faithfulness. Doubt doesn't just show up in whether I can believe a book of the Bible. It can show up in a believer's life. When I pray, I'm not even sure that God hears me. You there? Doubt's a funky thing. Doubts can happen. Maybe here's the bigger question. What do you do if you have doubt? So I think there's another story in the Bible. And Jesus himself is experiencing this with a person. Just the context. It's a father with a son who needs to be healed. The father's out of options, out of money, and out of time. It's a bad place to be at. But he's heard about who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. So he brings his son with the hopes that Jesus will do the miraculous and heal his son. Jesus tells him, man, I can do this. Do you believe? Do you believe? A simple question without always an easy answer. And so this story, I think, is in the Bible to help people who struggle from time to time with that. And so the guy, I think this is the most honest statement that a human can make when it comes to what you do without. He says, I do believe, but it's like out of the same mouth comes the next part of the sentence. There's not, look at this, there's not a period here, there's a semicolon. I do believe, but help me overcome my what? So is it possible to believe and yet have unbelief at the same time? If you're real, it is. Now, if you're super Christian and you're just, I just don't have any doubts whatsoever, God bless you. God, explain it all to us then. I love this. If you struggle ever with doubt, so many times, man, as a believer, you push that down. You're afraid of that. You're like, oh, God, how can I even feel this way? I think this story is here to teach us what to do. Rather than just sit there and let the doubt eat at your mind, say this to God, I have belief, but man, I'm struggling with unbelief at the same time. Help me. God wants to help you where you struggle. He is not trying to reject you because you struggle. And that's an important understanding. What do you do with doubt, man? Bring it to him. Say to him, I believe, but I'm having trouble with other things. Help me in this situation right here. I think doubt, man, will eat you up unless you bring it to a place where you talk to God about it and allow him to walk with you through that and bring you to the other side. Let me give you the other one that I think is just kind of a disqualifier in our minds, but not necessarily to God. Uh, this is kind of a big one. It's people talk about denial. I know that there was a lot of teaching when I was first a, a young believer. They taught a lot about the return of Jesus and that it was imminent at any time and you better be ready. And, then, and it was right at the time when LaHaye was writing his books. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say that? On the return of Jesus and what the earth would look like during that time. And the one thing is, man, do not be a denier of Christ. And there's truth there. Don't, don't misunderstand me. And there's a place where you have to stand for your faith. But I think sometimes we lump denial all in this place that if you love God and you believe in God, you never struggle with the idea of denial. And again, we have a disciple who walked with Jesus for three years who struggled with this issue. His name was Peter. So in Dr. Luke's book, Luke puts this story about Peter for us to understand how denial works sometimes in a person's life. So Peter replies to Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, to an accuser, man, I don't know what you're talking about. What is he saying? Jesus had told Peter earlier that night at the Last Supper, before the night's over, you're going to disown me, you're going to deny me, you're going to act like you never knew me three times in a row before the rooster crows in the morning. 
And Peter, of course, looks at Jesus and says, this is impossible. I am ready to die with you. I'll give my life for you. Trust me, you can trust me. Jesus says to Peter, it's prophetic. Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you so that your faith would not fail. And then he makes this statement. When you return, when you come back to me, strengthen the others. Almost like Jesus is prophesying to him, Peter, I'm praying for you. And after this event happens, my hand is still out to you. I'm not rejecting you. I'm not done with you. I, I, it's one of the most powerful things you could understand about the nature of God. By the way, the nature of God. Let me just say this because I love to say this. If you ever want to know how God feels about a situation, read about Jesus. Jesus is the revealed image of God on the earth. Jesus said, I don't say anything or do anything unless I've heard and seen my father do it. So if you want to know how Jesus feels about a person who stumbles in sin, read about the woman caught in adultery. Jesus doesn't throw a rock at her. He puts his hand out to help her step back into life. If you want to know how he feels about your children, then read how Jesus treats children. If you want to know how Jesus feels about any issue in life, it's the exact way that God felt about it. Just read about Jesus. All right, so Peter's in this place where Jesus has left the Last Supper. He's gone with a few of his disciples. They've gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been arrested. All the disciples leave him. Peter's trying to stay close enough to see what happens to Jesus. He's in the a courtyard of the high priest. And three times in a row, someone says to him, Man, you're one of his disciples. You know him. You've walked with him. And three times in a row, this is the third time, Peter's denied Jesus. So Peter replied to the third accusation. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. In my mind, the only reason this story is in here is not to expose Peter as a person who stumbled in his faith. It's put there because at times we all stumble in our faith. And sometimes we take the word denial and we think to ourselves, it's only in the context of if my life was on the line, I can't deny Jesus. Let me broaden your concept for a moment. Sometimes denial can be, I believe in Jesus but I have a lifestyle that's the opposite of what a believer would do. That's as much a disavowal. You're saying one thing, but you do another in the way that you live. And I know nobody in this service would have that problem. I realize none of you struggle with having any habit. I'm sure none of you struggle with anger. I'm sure you've never said a foul word. I'm sure you've never lied. I'm sure there's not a person in this room who struggles with something that you can't just simply say no to. Hey, let it sink in for a second. Because the message is not to crank on you for being that way. It's to say to you the way back out of that is just what Jesus said. Look, I'm praying for you. And after this event, come back to me. I think it's the most gracious, the most wonderful understanding of how God feels about us. Even when we stumble, God does not go, you're disqualified. Even if you go home today and live the exact opposite of everything you walked in here and proclaimed, 
God is not saying to you, I'm done with you. Jesus would say to you, just like he said to Peter, after this happens, I'm praying for you, and after this happens, come back to me. Yes or no, that's good news right there. My goodness, if you actually understood what I'm trying to tell you right now, it is <laughs> the mercy and the grace and the love of God is bigger than our sin. And this is not, so if you sit there, look, here, here's, here's what I know, okay? People who are judgmental are going to hate this message. The, 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 the law keepers in our congregation are going to be like, you can't teach that because people are now going to feel free to sin. People are sinning and condemned. Amen. What they need is to be set free so that the sin has no power over their lives any longer. Yes. 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 a lot I'd like to teach about that right now, but I'll digress quickly. <laughs> I think Jesus' thoughts about Peter before and after it's the difference between prophecy and history. Jesus is not saying, I'm praying for you so that you don't fall. Here's what he's saying. I'm praying for you so that your faith doesn't fail after you fail. Because the first thing we do when we fail is figure to ourselves, I must not be the genuine thing and God can't love me. And what Jesus is actually telling him is, even after you fail, I still love you. Still put my hand out to you. Let me give you the last one. So doubt, denial, this one, Kind of an old-fashioned word. We don't use it much anymore. But the word disgrace, maybe we use it in the midst of some type of political scandal, a sexual scandal, we'll say the word disgrace. But let me tell you where the word comes from. It wasn't even a word until the word grace came into our vocabulary. So disgrace wasn't there first, and then grace. Grace was there first, and then the word disgrace. Disgrace means, if you looked it up in the dictionary, it's the reversal or the opposite of grace. So there had to be grace first before there could be Disgrace. Disgrace is just simply to be the opposite of grace. Jonah chapter 4. It's only 11 verses. It's really weird. I mean, it's really weird for this reason. I don't know if you've read it recently, but the very ending of it, it leaves it open. It doesn't close it. It, it ends like there's got to be one more verse, right? There has to be a decision here. And I think the reason it's left open is because it's open for you to decide what should have been the ending of this book. I'm going to read it to you. It's only 11 verses. You can handle 11 verses, can't you? Yes. I think so. All right. So this is chapter 4, 11 verses. The end of the story begins with these words. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. What seemed very wrong? Chapter 3's last verse is that God has just had mercy on all the people in Nineveh. And because they repented, God wants to bless them and not judge them. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Dis does that not start out? I, I, it's hard for me to think, how could this man who loves God and knows God and just experienced the grace of God in his own life, how can he three or four weeks later have forgotten about that grace and been so angry that God's going to give grace to someone else? But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Here's his prayer. Again, I am glad that not every prayer I've ever prayed is recorded for all people to see throughout history. So he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, look at this, I knew that you are gracious, that you are compassionate, that you are slow to anger, that you're abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He's not happy about this. He's mad that God is like this. <laughs> now, Lord, take away my life. 
because you're so good. For it is better for me to die than it is to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? <laughs> Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. Why did he do this? Because God had pronounced 40 days. These people repented in the first week. And so he's going to go sit for three and a half weeks to see if God will finally send judgment on the people. That's why he's sitting there. So Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. Love that, God provided. God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. <laughs> when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and here is his prayer again. It would be better for me to die than to live. But God answers Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? It is. <laughs> and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about the plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. In other words, you had nothing to do with it. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not have more concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? This sentence, who cannot tell their right hand from their left, Adults know the difference between right and left. Who doesn't? What God is saying to Jonah is, it's 120,000 adults, and there's a lot of little kids involved in this too, buddy. So he's telling him, you're more concerned about this plant than you are about these people. In which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Wouldn't you think there's another sentence somewhere after that? Is that not the most awkward way? And Jonah fell to his knees and before the Lord crying, I'm so sorry I was wrong. Or Jonah said one more time, kill me because I don't want to live. But it just suddenly leaves it open to what do you think happened next? Let me just talk about disgrace for just a second. I think sometimes we become so good at judging someone else's disgrace that we don't realize we're acting just like Jonah. Every one of us that have experienced salvation have experienced the highest level of God's grace in your life, yes or no? And I want you to remember what I'm about to say. To the measure you're experiencing grace right now, not 20 years ago, not 20 months ago, the depth that you're experiencing grace today is the depth that you can give that grace to someone else. And if you can't give grace to someone else, it's because you've forgotten what God has done for you. And just like Jonah, we can experience it at one point in our life and be so needful of it, but then forget what God's done for us and be so judgmental towards another person who needs God's grace just like we did. I think this book is in here for several reasons, but one is to teach the followers of Jesus the lovers of God, that it's easy to forget what God has done for you and then be so judgmental against somebody else that needs that grace in the same way you did. And I'm going to remind you, look at me so you hear me say it. You didn't need a Savior 20 years ago. You've needed him every day since 20 years ago too. You need his grace as much today as you did when you came to salvation. And now you've learned the game. You know how to dress and you know how to talk, Christianese. Brother, friend, follower, discipleship, 
fellowship so you can talk the language. But if you don't experience the grace in your heart, you can preach the language and have your heart in the wrong place. And that's what happened to Jonah. And it's a warning as much as it's an encouragement that the real disgrace is to be a person who knows grace and to act the opposite of it in this life. That's what disgrace is. I just threw this in just because I felt like maybe there's a question here. I'm over my time, but I'll just do it real quick. So is there any disqualification? I mean, Jesus died for everybody. Does that mean everybody goes to heaven? No. If you need to have me say it, I'll say it plainly so you understand it. Jesus died for every person so that they could be redeemed, so that they could have life eternal. But not everybody goes to heaven. Why? I think you find it in the only thing the Bible ever puts in the context of the only thing that can't be forgiven. The only real disqualification, these are Jesus' words again. Mark chapter 3. Jesus is talking, teaching. He's talking about the whole issue of judgment and words and just, and he concisely comes down, he just says this, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes, that word right there is a difficult word for us because we don't use it. We don't understand it. Again, we have a very limited context of blasphemy. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. So here's the only sin that Jesus said can't be forgiven. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So blasphemy in our definition would be to say something like a curse word about the Holy Spirit. It's not the context here. Here's what it is. The Holy Spirit was given to us by the Father. Jesus said it's better if I leave so that you can have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' spirit in the whole world. The Holy Spirit is here to do several things, but these two are really important. He convicts the world of sin, and he opens up our mind to the opportunity to believe. You can't decide when you're going to believe without the help of the Holy Spirit. So there'll be people in this room today who hear me talk, but it sounds like the Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. And why can some of you understand me and some of you can't? Because the Holy Spirit is making it understandable to you right now. You'll hear God reach out and say, this is for you. I'm not against you. I'm for you. I'm not judging you. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not pushing you away. I'm offering you today life. That's the Holy Spirit who's making that available to you right now. Here's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's to then say to God's grace, I don't want your grace. To leave this life saying to God, no. The only sin that can't be forgiven it's the one that when you stand before him and you didn't say to him, I need your mercy, I need your grace. To reject him is to reject the Holy Spirit. And that's the disqualifier. God, Pastor, that's such a black and white horse issue. Why say that? Because I love you. Because I want you to understand that God's heart is not to exclude you. It's to stand like this and to invite you to a relationship. And if you hear the Holy Spirit say to you today, that's for you, don't reject that. I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm not asking you to learn the language. I'm not asking you to reform, clean up, get religion, whatever word we use. I'm asking you today, do you need God's mercy in your life? I'm asking you today, do you want to say yes to a relationship with the Father? 
I'm asking you today if you need to be forgiven. I'm asking you today, do you hear the Holy Spirit? If you don't, then you're not responsible. But if you do, do you want to say yes to that? Do you want to be included on what he has when it comes to eternity and his love and his life, his mercy, his blessing? Because God stands like this, but you have to say yes to it. Father, we love you. And I thank you, God, for giving me the opportunity to stand in front of this group of people and talk to them. I thank you, Lord, for another day of life. I thank you, Lord, that you're here right now, that you're in our midst, and that your spirit is, is in the most wonderful way trying to open people's hearts, trying to speak truth to them, not in a condemning way, but in a life-giving way. The entire Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, one message. God's doing everything he can to let you know he loves you. You were created to know him, to be connected to him, to live in his grace and his mercy and his life. You're not created just to struggle not created just to survive and make it day to day. So I just want to ask the question to you right now. Again, I'm not asking you if you want to be religious. I'm not asking you if you want to go to church. I'm asking you, do you need God's grace and do you need God's mercy? If right now you feel the Holy Spirit speak to your heart, Maybe you're even faced with the issue of, John, I don't know if I can believe everything. Can you believe this? God loves you, and through Jesus, he's made everything right so that you can experience his mercy. Can you believe that? If you hear the Holy Spirit tug on your heart for that issue right there, and you say, remember me when you pray today, because I want God's mercy. I want that relationship. I want the thing that you're talking about, John. And remember me when you pray today. If that's you, hey, I won't embarrass you. won't make you stand. I'm just trying to facilitate something. If that's you and you need that, slip your hand up right now. Just pray for me, Pastor. Yeah, yeah I see you. Yeah, there's many of you. It's many. I'm just going to take a second. Does anybody just, just... Pastor, pray for me today. I need that in my life. I see you put them back down. Yep, I see you, sir. Yep. Somebody else, just remember me when you pray today. I'm going to pray for you but my words aren't the words that get it done it'll be what's in your heart right now that God's listening to so when I pray if you're like that's it that's what I want here's all I want you to say just tell God yes just tell him that's it right there so Father thank you for hearing our prayers thank you for the activity of the Holy Spirit and Lord as people hear you call their name Lord they're answering yes they're saying yes to your mercy and your grace yes to your help yes to your life God maybe they even come this morning and boldly here's what I would say maybe they're struggling with I'm not sure I believe everything I read in the Bible okay 
God's big enough to work on those issues. But if you come at the very point of salvation right now saying, I just, I need God's mercy and I need his grace. I want to experience his love. That's enough to start with. So wherever you are, whatever you're dealing with, wherever you're coming at this message from, just right now, man, from your heart, tell God yes. Yes. Yes, be merciful to me. Yes, forgive me. Yes, help me. Yes. God, I thank you for hearing us today. I thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for your great grace and mercy, Lord, available to all of us. God, may we all today experience it in a new way so that we don't become people who operate in disgrace, but we operate every day in grace. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.